It's Thursday, August the 20th, and welcome to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining the social, economic, political, and geopolitical implications of the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. It's my pleasure and honor to be your host of today's broadcast. Now, for those of you who have been watching us, and this is about five months into Goodfellows now, it's hard to believe we've been doing it this long, but I think five months now has been our run now. We appreciate your loyalty and we appreciate the kind words you have to say to us on social media. We surely appreciate it. Those of you who have not seen us before, what you're going to see for the better course of the next hour or so is a conversation featuring three Hoover Institution senior fellows, or Goodfellows as we like to call them, with a wink and a nod toward Martin Scorsese, but three Hoover senior fellows offering their unique insights to what may lie ahead in these uncertain times. Now let's meet the Goodfellows, beginning with John Cochran. He's an economist and the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. Hey, John, how are you? I'm doing great. So long as the power stays on and the smoke doesn't invade here in California, it's always fun. That is a good question. We're also joined by Neil Ferguson from somewhere in the great beyond of California, his wilderness outpost. Neil is a renowned historian and author, and he is the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Hello, Neil. How are you? I'm well, thanks, uh, Bill. If it's any consolation, John, it's pretty smoky out here too. Uh, feels like the whole country is on fire. In fact, it's getting pretty biblical. You just told me, I think, uh, that that lightning struck the Hoover Tower. I, I, I'm feeling that a plague of locusts can yep. only be days the away. Locusts come. All right. Our third uh, good fellow, last but certainly not least, is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Fawad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow. H.R., how are you today? Good, Bill. Good to see you and John and Neil. Well, gentlemen, we've agreed to uh, dedicate this episode and next week's broadcast of Goodfellows to discussing the elephant and the donkey in the room, which would be the health of the Democratic and Republican parties in America, this week and next being the two parties' national conventions. Now, before we get into this, a word uh, to all those listening. The Hoover Institution is a nonpartisan, nonprofit operation. We are not going to skewer Democrats exclusively this week. We're going to be critical at some points, but rest assured that next week when we turn our attention to the Republicans, we will have a few unkind words to say, I imagine, such as politics in America in 2020. But this week, gentlemen, let's talk about the Democrats. And here's what I'd like to throw out at you as an opening question. It's easy to poke fun at Joe Biden. It is easy to point out the irony of a party that wants to avoid the appearance of socialism, scheduling a convention in a city that was once the socialist capital of America. But having said all of that, gentlemen, is there maybe something kind of big that we should be looking at, a wave that is coming offshore, a wave not unlike 1980 where we didn't see it coming, but afterwards we thought we should have seen it coming. Gentlemen, is there a hard push to the left coming up? And Neil Ferguson, why don't you run with this? Well, it's hard uh, for me to compare this with uh, 1980. Uh, it seems to me that what's most striking about uh, Joe Biden uh, and uh, the Democratic Party, as it would like to be seen with Joe Biden as candidate, mm -hmm. is that it's so old-fashioned uh, that it really is harking back to uh, a different era, the era in which uh, Joe Biden's career was launched. I said uh, years ago uh, that populism had a relatively short half-life historically, and that it tended to be followed, at least in the U.S., by progressivism. And, and sure enough, as it seems like populism has uh, burnt itself out uh, metaphorically, uh, as well as it, literally in California, 
you can see that we're almost set certain, or not certain, but likely to have uh, the progressive uh, alternative. But it's so tired. Uh, unlike in the early 1900s, when progressivism and its uh, European equivalent social democracy were new and exciting and offered some semi-plausible solutions to the big problems of the industrial urban society of that time, I'm, I'm struck by the kind of tired quality of what is ultimately on offer here. Uh, and the reason that they're putting Biden up front is, I think, pretty obvious, uh, that they don't want to present uh, voters with uh, the re real radicalism, which uh, the, the, the left wing of the Democratic Party currently stands for. They want to make believe that with Uncle Joe, we can get back to the days of normalcy uh, when folks worked together and solved problems in a bipartisan way, sort of turn the clock back progressivism, which almost sounds to me like a, like a contradiction in terms. If you look at the Biden program, uh, wade your way through it, as I've tried to do, it's, a, it's good old-fashioned spend and tax. Huge spending uh, is envisaged, and it's pretty hard for Republicans to argue against that after the huge spending that they've committed to uh, in the past eight months, and pretty significant increases in, in direct taxation, though nothing near uh, enough to cover the increased spending that's envisaged. So this is, it's the old progressivism, it's the old Democratic Party that voters are being offered here. And I, I think that's kind of somewhat dispiriting, to be honest, as well as I think a little bit deceptive because it's clear that there's another Democratic Party just visible in the wings and certainly visible in some of the sort of chat rooms that are going on uh, uh, with sig significantly smaller audiences. Well, John Cochran, uh, uh, yeah. Rahm Emanuel, a uh, pretty smart guy, we would agree. Rahm Emanuel, a former congressman, uh, Bill Clinton's chief of staff, I believe, when he was president, and most notably former mayor of Chicago. Uh, John Cochran, part of the first say, all wisdom lies in Chicago. Rahm Emanuel wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal on Saturday in which he talked about this election and used the phrase, quote, generational transformation. And I'd like to read a little passage to you, John, in which Emanuel talked about Democrats needing to, quote, focus on what happens after Trump has has been uh, ushered off the stage. In other words, he thinks Democrats need to be talking about specifics as to what will it do. But we, for the last three nights, don't granted, we're doing this before Biden's acceptance speech. We don't know if he'll get into specifics, but this convention has been pretty notable for avoiding specific things they want to do in 2021. The theme has been, let's get rid of Donald Trump. So do you think a generational transformation is indeed working here? Um, so I hope, I, I, let's put on the, the agenda to talk about in 20 minutes specifics as far as what's going to happen with policies, um, you know, schools, cities, energy, monetary policy, and so forth. Uh, and so I, I, want to, I want to put that shit down. We'll talk about it later and, and stick with your big issue question. I, I think I disagree a little with Neil. I, I do see more of a way of coming. <clears throat> um, there is an elephant in the room. His name is Trump. Uh, we wouldn't be here now with the, the Democratic Party doing what they were if, if there weren't quite a lot of dissatisfaction with the personality and antics of the current argument. Uh, and I think what they're doing is, is go just left enough uh, to barely, to stay just moderate enough to barely win the election <laughs> is, is the strategy. You know, Biden is, is clearly saying as little as possible. Um, 
Now they did decide not to go full on progressive. They did not, uh, you know, uh, AOC and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are not their presidential candidates. Um, but as I see it, uh, the old, I, I love the way Neil put it, the old, the late 1960s, early 1970s, the septuagenarians are being put up sort of as the stuffed uh, front, the, the, the ones we talk about so that the middle of the road voters won't be scared to death. Uh, but who will actually be writing the laws? Who will be writing the rules? Who will be writing the dear colleague letters? Who will be writing the subpoenas? Who will be running the investigations? Uh, that as who wrote the Democratic Party platform that, that Neil tried to go through. That will be clearly in the hands of the young and the energetic, not the septuagenarian symbols who are up there to make us feel like it's all going to be kumbaya on November 7th. Uh, and they are um, a strong uh, political force. Now, I agree with Neil. They, as far as ideas are concerned, the, the modern progressivism is, is mostly noticeable for the, the nuttiness of its ideology. But ideology has always been an, an opiate for the masses. Um, this is about power, the getting of power, the taking of power, the keeping of power. Uh, and they will use the machinery of the government uh, in, in order to um, send things to uh, people who support them. And uh, we can talk about that more in, in the policy things. But I think that is really, you know, the situation is that is who's going to be running things because the, what matters is the details. And it's clear the energy of Biden and Pelosi and that generation in their upper 70s uh, is not going to be the energy that does, you know, what they have to stand for is what Walter Mondale stood for in 1984. It hasn't changed that much, just a little more of the same. Uh, we can talk about the pol a little more unions, a little more subsidies to this, a little more subsidies to that. But who will actually be running things are the young progressive millennials, and they are a political and ideological force to be reckoned with. It worked out too well for Mondale, though, and now did it. 49 out of 50 states he lost. HR, uh, Monday nights, uh, the opening night of the Democratic Convention, I found... Uh, rather remarkable in this regard. And it wasn't what Michelle Obama had to say. It was what others had to say time and again, in which they held Donald Trump directly responsible for the debts of Americans. You heard this repeatedly. Donald Trump has killed 150,000 Americans. He's killed 170,000 Americans. This strikes me as a real interesting move in rhetoric in American politics. I, I remember the 2004 Democratic Convention in Boston, HR. I don't remember a orphan from 9-11 standing on the stage and blaming George W. Bush for the death of everybody in the World Trade Center, for example. So is this a reflection of Donald Trump or is this a larger reflection, HR, of where rhetoric has gone in politics and really American discourse now? Bill, I think that was the most disappointing aspect of the convention for me, was to, was to see the blame being placed on, at the feet of the president, right? And I think it's legitimate, right? You can, you can, you can criticize the president for the COVID-19 response, but to blame the president for the effects this virus has had overall, and to give the total numbers of, death, of deaths as being directly attributable to, to the president, I think it's abhorrent. I think, sadly, though, it's not atypical. You know, our, 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 you know, our vitriolic, you know, partisan, you know, rhetoric and discourse has been moving in this direction. I'm hoping, did we reach bottom with this? I hope we reached bottom with this, but I'm, I fear that we haven't. And, and what's, sad, what's sad about this is, you know, whenever there is this kind of extreme position, ridiculous position, it tends to elicit just as an extreme 
know, and ridiculous position on the other end of the political spectrum. And so what happens? We, we, we pull ourselves apart, you know, and then and then if we're going to talk about, as you're suggesting, Bill, you know, what you know, what are the concrete recommendations associated with the problems we're facing that we're never going to get to it? Right. Because we'll be so busy, you know, kind of kind of uh, accusing each other of, of just you know, ridiculous and, and, and you know, egregious uh, acts. Um, yeah, it, it was it was disappointment for me, but sadly, it's it, it's it's not uh, it, it's not atypical of the of the political discourse as we've witnessed it. Right. Over, you know, I would say the last couple of administrations, even going back to the to, to the George W. Bush administration, I think it really began. Uh, to to unravel in this in this way, HR and, and, and Bill, I wonder if I could jump in here with a point that has uh, has I don't think been made. At least I haven't seen it made. Uh, if you think back to the Obama presidency, it's not like they didn't have uh, their uh, epidemic, uh, although nobody uh, has mentioned it this week. But there were three waves of uh, opioid overdoses that swept through the United States during the Obama presidency and more than doubling the opioid-related death rate uh, in the time that he was in the White House. And in total, more than 365,000 Americans died of drug overdoses between 2009 and 2016. And each year, the death toll was higher than the year before. And unlike COVID-19, the age groups affected were relatively young. Uh, it was actually those between 25 and 54 who were most affected. Now, nobody, to my knowledge, uh, during or at any point after the Obama presidency, blamed Barack Obama for those deaths. Uh, but you don't need to be a John Cochran-level e economist to recognize that the death toll is higher than for COVID-19. The number of life years uh, lost is, is significantly higher. And this happened each year for eight years and got steadily worse without any solution being found. And I do find myself asking why it is that Donald Trump is to blame for the deaths caused by COVID-19 in the space of just a few months, uh, in a way that, of course, has been seen in many other countries, uh, and indeed worse uh, in a number of European countries, and yet we completely pass over the catastrophe of the opioid epidemic during the Obama years as if it simply had nothing to do with him. And this brings me to a point that has really been bugging me all week. I listened and, and reread uh, President Obama's uh, speech this week. Initially, my response was this is a good and well-crafted speech and I can't help but agree with much of it. But I, I found myself wondering what was missing and then it hit me. No acknowledgement at all that there might be some causal relationship between the Obama presidency and that backlash that produced Donald Trump's victory in 2016. Nobody, it seems to me, at this convention has an answer to the question of why it was, if the Obama years were so wonderful, uh, Donald Trump was elected four years ago, and it was missing too from Kamala Harris's entirely solipsistic speech. So I do feel that there's something a little bit troubling here. If these people are going to win, uh, they don't seem to have learned anything uh, from defeat four years ago, and they don't seem to have any understanding of why they were repudiated at the ballot box four years ago. Well, I don't think they have to. I mean, to follow up with HR, um, e e even more so, 
the, uh, I've been struck that in this criticism, neither at the time nor now are they saying, well, here's what we would have done different. We would have gotten the CDC off their butts to certify a test and not sit on it for 21 days. We would have gotten the FDA to allow people to have tests. We would have gotten vaccines going quicker. You hear? We would have banned international travel. Nothing. There's no alternative program, even with hindsight of what they or would have. Or national stockpile of, of PPE equipment. Well, or we would have allowed you to. We would have not allowed them. these supply chains to become so fragile, you know, and, 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 uh, and based on exclusively you know, efficiency without the stocks necessary to. The, this, and, and these problems weren't confined only to the Trump years. I mean, these were problems that go beyond. And, Let, and let's get back to the. Let's get back to the. Uh, so unfortunate, John. Really but the point, you're, you're exactly right. It, it is an empty finger to point, but they don't have to. The strategy is uh, where it simply make fun of Donald Trump. They are. It's not about vote for us on a positive message. They know they, yeah. their positive message is one that a large majority of the electorate, if they knew what it was, don't want. It is the antics of Donald Trump gets people to vote against Donald Trump the same way. In 2016, lots of people voted against Hillary Clinton. A lot of the polling is not that they love Donald Trump. A lot of the polling was that they felt disparaged by Hillary Clinton and by that party. Just be quiet about what you're going to do. Keep the focus on Trump. That is the strategy of, uh, of what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. well, Neil, it seems to me we have a historic parallel. This is a revolution of sorts in that the public wants to uprise against an unpopular ruler. But revolutions are driven by a force and revolutions have results and revolutions have agenda. But Neil, what is the agenda of this revolution or is this indeed a revolution? Well, I think we had a revolutionary situation in the United States uh, in the wake of uh, the, the death of George Floyd. And I think if you look at the scale of the protests that unfolded after Memorial Day and that ran right the way through uh, to July. Uh, it was remarkable uh, in terms of the numbers of people and the numbers of cities where protests happened and the and the level of violence that there was uh, uh, spilling over into into full-blown iconoclasm in places. But but it then did, as these protests tend to do historically, uh, it petered out. And uh, what's left, I think, uh, is uh, a kind of uh, leitmotif of, of gesturing towards uh, the idea of Black Lives Matter. And we've seen that in numerous uh, ways this week. I think what's striking about this is the extent to which uh, it's possible to have uh, a kind of revolution of virtue signaling that changes relatively little. I'm, I'm observing the way big tech billionaires write checks uh, uh, to uh, organizations or institutions engaged in the critical race theory uh, in advancing the notion of systemic racism. The journalist Matt Taibbi made a very good point a few weeks ago in which he said that this kind of thing, where you, you write a check uh, so that uh, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' ideas can be communicated to people uh, in middle school, and that's it. You're, you're done, and you can carry on in your relatively unregulated uh, a technology company in Silicon Valley, uh, having done really very little to alter uh, the fundamental and real problems of socioeconomic disadvantage that, that uh, African-Americans uh, experience. And this is what I think uh, is interesting about the Democratic Party, uh, that, that in many ways, uh, whatever its rhetoric, which is often 
quite egalitarian in its language. In, in practice, it, it actually does nothing to address the problems of a disadvantage at the lower end of the income distribution. Uh, the Obama years widened uh, the inequalities uh, in American life. They, they actually did very little for African-Americans. The Trump administration up until COVID-19 struck did quite a bit more measurably to improve the economic lot uh, of African-Americans and reduced the gap in unemployment rates between uh, whites and non-whites uh, in America. So I, I think this is a fake revolution in which uh, wealthy people uh, with very large stock portfolios, I'm thinking here of, uh, of Susan Rice, who was another candidate uh, for uh, for the vice presidential uh, part of the ticket, carry on uh, leading the good life, uh, whether it's in Silicon Valley or Napa Valley or in the Hamptons over the summer or on Martha's Vineyard, but they're made to feel good uh, by speeches like the ones that, that we've heard this week, knowing that in the end, uh, there really won't be fundamental change because the Democratic Party isn't really serious about improving the li lives of people at the bottom of the income distribution. It would rather actually keep them there in positions of dependence, uh, uh, reliance on welfare and, and, uh, and equipping them with uh, a, a kind of uh, subject matter for their, for their litanies of virtue signaling. Can I, can I follow on? I, I want to sort of disagree and sort of not. I think there is a chance of a revolution here. Revolutions happen when the ancien regime turns out to be rotten and lots of people voted out. And I think that that's what they're counting on is vote out Trump and Trumpism. And then a small, well-organized minority can grab uh, power and use it uh, ruthlessly. That's sort of like the Russian Revolution. There was no widespread vote to have the Bolsheviks come in. There was widespread revulsion at the Tsar, but then they, they grabbed power uh, with a good program and an ideology and, and took with it. And that's the kind of revolution, if we're gonna have one, that we're going to have now. Uh, the, the progressive, the, you know, and they're, what, 30, 40% tops of the electorate, uh, but they can, uh, come in under revulsion with Trump and then grab power. And they know how to use it effectively. And they know they have an ideology to, to go with it. It's not just uh, corporations. I received a letter from the American Economic Association instructing us to, to read uh, Mr. Coates's work and not Tom Sowell's work, actual economists who say something uh, about race. The virtue signaling, and this is what, this is what the bourgeoisie does, uh, it, it says, yes, 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 to the young revolutionaries, leave us out of trouble. And then next thing you know, uh, they're in trouble too, as, as the left is now eating its own. I agree entirely with what Neil says. As we, as we look at this movement, it is uh, lots of America woke up to the difficulty of black lives and, and uh, the, the fact, but not the political movement that black lives do matter, and they will destroy black lives. Uh, they are now leaving cities behind. Uh, they have uh, many, many of the riots are white kids from the suburbs in mom's basement who go to black neighborhoods and burn down the businesses. This looks a lot like Tulsa, except for the different rhetoric uh, uh, involved. I was amused that the Reverend Al Sharpton uh, was on uh, TV uh, last week saying, you know, you latte drinking liberals with your ideas stay behind. We need cops in, in our, in our uh, neighborhoods. But you have had those that have no identity with the communities 
that don't live in any of the danger of the gun violence that are now trying to put us in harm's way to uh, to fit some purest latte liberalism that they advocate. Uh, the cities are falling apart and the black lives that live in those cities are, are going to be hurt dreadfully by, uh, by, by this waves. And um, don't look for redress. Uh, what will the government do? You know, we had a war on poverty and it ended up uh, in poverty one, as the joke goes. Uh, we didn't end up actually sending money to poor people. We ended up sending money to organizations that, uh, that support policies for poor people. And that's what I forecast will come out of this as well. Don't, don't count on uh, any actual improvements in black lives. Count on uh, teachers unions being put back into force, which will destroy another generation of inner city black lives by denying them an education. Uh, lots of organizations that support the electoral prospects of Democrats will get lots and lots of money. Uh, but as, as Neil says, uh, the, the fate of, of especially inner city African-Americans will doubtlessly be worse under progressive governance uh, than it is now. Well, John, thank you for mentioning the Russian Revolution because as Neil was talking, Kerensky came to mind. And Joe Biden is perhaps a four-year proposition given his age. Kamala Harris is 56 years old later, uh, turns 56 in October, so maybe she could do 12 years in national politics. She would leave office at age 68, which is a pup by today's standards. Um, but I'm looking at AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who also has a birthday coming up in October. She turns 31. That is the same age that Joe Biden was when he came to Washington in 1973. Now, I don't know the likelihood of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez staying around Washington for the next half century. I think there's a very interesting bet to be made about whether she'll be in Congress four years from now or hosting a show on NBC or maybe uh, doing a deal with Netflix for content. But the question is her movement. She was given 97 seconds of the convention to speak, but the young accolades who follow Alexandria Cortez, who want to come into Congress, who want to be in the system, do they intend to actually come into the system and work in the system? In other words, can you have a revolution without getting into the system actually trying to change from within? I think it just depends on what, on what, do you, what, what kind of change, right? What is the agenda? Right. You know, what we've been talking about is really, it's really easy to be against something. It's, it's more difficult to be for something, and especially before something in a way where you can make real proposals that might actually get something done, that might actually address the actual problems. As we're talking about you know, the, the inner cities today and defund the police, really that's the solution that's going to destroy those neighborhoods, that's going to reduce economic activity, that is going to exacerbate inequality of opportunity. It's just the opposite. It's the wrong. It's the wrong solution. Look at the energy sector and the interrelated problems of of energy and carbon emissions and global warming. Hey, the Green New Deal would be a disaster, right? It doesn't. It doesn't address the problem effectively. It's a non-solution. What are you going to do? Ban fracking? Ban fracking? Fracking was and and the and the access to cheap natural gas was the largest reduction resulted in the largest reduction of car in carbon emissions in human history mm -hmm. and, and we're going to throw that out so i you know i just think that what, what we what we really need is we need to have conversations about these issues and we need the american public to educate themselves about the problem sets right mm -hmm. so yeah I'm, I'm reading this book now i'm really enjoying it it's called the color of law it's about how laws especially after the post-world war ii period mm -hmm. really created segregation helped create uh, segregation and, and inequality of, of opportunity now it's kind of a sad story but you know it actually we should look at the silver lining which means if policy played a role in creating inequality of opportunity well policy can play a positive role 
in, 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 in addressing that problem set. Education, as John said, is, is a, a tremendous part of this problem set. But what we're not hearing are real solutions. What we're hearing is an ideological position that frankly just is not that well informed on these issues. And this is what the American people ought to demand from their politicians. And, and I think the first step in doing that is, is for, for our electorate to become as best educated as they can about these issues. Okay, so let's educate them a little bit. And I'd like to assign each of you a policy area. Neil, I want to begin with you. Kamala Harris had an interesting phrase last night, and her phrase was, there is no vaccine for racism. Uh, I'm a recovering speechwriter, so I know how phrases like that happen. Somebody writes that, they think that's very clever. It sounds good. I'm not sure what it means, though. There is no vaccine for racism. You study culture. You've been studying America becoming unhinged along these lines. What happens in 2020, 2021? Is there a pursuit of a vaccine for racism? Well, I mean, the simple uh, answer to the question is, uh, oh, yes, there is. Uh, uh, and it's, it's the way you are brought up by your parents and the way you're educated. And uh, though I'm now in my mid-50s, I was brought up uh, by two wonderful uh, Scottish uh, graduates, the first in their families to go to university. Uh, Glasgow in those days was an entirely uh, white city. Uh, but they made it clear to me uh, from my earliest years that there was no difference uh, between people uh, based on skin color. And you should treat all people the same. That was the first political lesson I ever learned. I know that because I found that I'd written it down when I was 10 uh, on a little scrap of paper. So I, I think there is a vaccine against racism. That's clear. Uh, the problem is I, I worry very much that the left has already decided that the way it's going to conduct its vaccination uh, scheme is through uh, a whole variety of uh, institutional initiatives, not least at the universities, but also in schools and in corporations that are actually going to be counterproductive uh, and will not in fact instill in people the central notion of respect for all individuals regardless of skin color or for that matter uh, religion or any other uh, differentiating factor. I, I think it's very interesting to read uh, some of the more critical thinkers on these issues in the African-American community. We heard on this show from Roland Fryer uh, at the height of the, the protests and I thought it was illuminating. I've been reading a lot of Coleman Hughes's commentary on this. And the, the recurrent theme of, of Coleman's writing is that the people who portray themselves as the anti-racists and whose books have become required reading, bestsellers partly because corporations are kind of uh, shamed into buying them and distributing them, they are in fact the racists. That paradoxically, the people who proclaim themselves to be anti-racists are in fact the ones who want to essentialize race by insisting that white people are uniquely burdened uh, with historical guilt that somehow can never be expunged. So it seems to me that the left doesn't actually have a vaccine for racism at all. It has something that is calculated to spread it and make it a permanent condition in, in our societies and a kind of weird reversal. I, I've spotted this a couple of years ago when the New York Times started to run op-eds by people saying that actually they wouldn't let their black children play with white children. And I thought to myself, hang on, is this the segregation 
of the left that we're now confronting. So I, I think there's, there's, there's a vaccine, all right, but I, I don't think it's what the Democrats are planning uh, to inject us with, sadly. All right, John and Nature, what balance do you see in terms of grievance versus empowerment? Because it seems this party is leaning very heavily toward grievance right now, issues like reparations. But what about the empowerment side, lifting people out well, of poverty? I look at things in, in a political line. I agree with Neil. Where we're learning, we're learning to become less racist comes from is is uh, the civil society, your parents, your churches, your your upbringing, and simply the spread of of what is clearly. A, a morally right thing to do, which America actually should be fairly proud of considering the depths we came out of you know, uh, uh, in this on how we've done. Uh, experience helps. I, I went to a 90% black high school that helped a lot. To, it helps actually know some African-Americans uh, rather than uh, rather that than this be entirely abstract. Um, where it doesn't come from is from the federal government, from uh, ever more intricate laws, rules, uh, virtue signaling about which authors you read while you live in your, in your nice white suburb. Um, <clears throat> but that's not convenient politically. And, uh, you know, you want to look what's happening. I think, you know, the politics of it, we are headed towards a Lebanese system of organizing uh, the spoils of power around racially or organized groups. <clears throat> You're, Neil is exactly right. There's a strong movement towards segregation uh, in, in a lot of the progressive things in order to form uh, such groups and have them be more effective uh, political groups. Uh, that's where we are, are headed as it becomes more political, and that just makes the tensions between. That certainly, you know, look at Lebanon. That doesn't make the religious, ethnic, or racial groups uh, get along better to formally organize the spoils of politics uh, along racial lines. And and that's the answer that they are. Uh, that's what they're they're doing, and it's going to have exactly the opposite effect. All right, HR, you would not be surprised to know that I'm assigning you foreign policy. Um, the foreign policy portion of the convention was handled by John Kerry, who seemed to portray a pretty vivid picture of foreign policy under Barack Obama and the suggestion that the Biden administration would return to the Obama days. So let's, let's talk about what the most notable changes would be in foreign policy. I assume it's climate change. I assume it's Iran. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, and I'll, I'll tell you that the greatest success of the Obama administration's foreign policy was to empower Iran across the greater Middle East. And, and, uh, and, and I, I think that they're just waiting to, to welcome Iran back into the international community because as Neil alluded to, I, they're, they're, the view, the nostalgic view of those Obama years, uh, I think is, is, is highly in, inaccurate and it doesn't acknowledge that those years created many of the problems that, that we're dealing with today. It didn't create them, but I mean, exacerbated them. Mm -hmm. and, and in particular, it's this belief that our disengagement from complex problem sets overseas is an unmitigated good. And this is quite explicit in the Obama administration policy toward the Middle East, that, that we were going to have a courageous withdrawal from, from, from the Middle East and, and opting out of really any effort to kind of influence developments in the region associated with the Syrian civil war, uh, the disengagement from Iraq completely in December of two, 2011. That would actually make the situation better because they tended to see us as the problem uh, in, in, in the region. And of course, we know what happened subsequently in the, in the Syrian civil war, one of the greatest humanitarian catastrophes since the end of World War II, the rise of ISIS. ISIS takes over territory the size of, of Great Britain uh, and, and, uh, and, and inflicts you know, horrible, uh, horrible uh, suffering uh, of the people, on the people in the region and creates a refugee crisis, right? which 
which spills over in other countries and, and, and in, into Europe. So I, I think that they have not revised really their approach based on, on what should have been lessons learned. Lessons learned, especially that Iran is not going to modify its behavior, is not going to end its 40-year-long proxy war with the, with the great Satan, the United States, the little Satan, Israel, and with the Arab monarchies. Right. And, and one of the new realities in the region is that in the region, there's a recognition that Iran is the real problem, and therefore, you're starting to see some of these new relationships develop, like the UAE and Israel, like the rest of the Gulf states, seeing their interests align more with Israel on Iran, then they then they diverge over issues like like uh, like the the, the, the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Said, so I mean I think what's sad about it is they every administration seems to now define their foreign policy mainly by their opposition to, to the administration they replace, and and therefore doesn't learn the lessons from from even even our most recent experiences. And apply them to a thoughtful foreign policy going going forward. The worst thing to do would be try, to try to resurrect the, the kind of agreement with Iran under the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear deal. The worst thing to do would be to alleviate sanctions uh, on Iran as, as a result of that and give them more money, throw them a rope, you know, as they're, 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 they are experiencing constraints uh, associated with the sanctions that have been put back on place uh, in place on the regime. So I, I just think. And from a foreign policy perspective, the worst thing to do would be to replicate the Obama years. Now, I will say just quickly, sadly, sadly, some of the recent Trump administration decisions seem to be kind of aligned with the Obama administration approach to, to, to the region. And there is this sort of there is sort of this drive toward retrenchment, disengagement from these problem sets and the belief that this is an unmitigated good that cuts across both parties. So just as we were talking about whether it's you know education, climate, equality of opportunity, um, or, or energy and so forth, it, it really applies to foreign policy as well. We need to really try to understand these problems on their own terms, understand what vital interests of ours are at stake, and then have a discussion about what should our goals and objectives be? What are limitations on the influence we have? How can we work with partners to, 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 to build a better future internationally and address you know, these problem sets overseas before they reach our shores. I just don't see any discussion like that happening, really across, you know, across the Democratic Party, um, but even at times with, within the Trump administration as well. Neil, I haven't heard a word about China, have you? <laughs> I no. was wondering when we get to China, because one thing's for sure, uh, if there is a Biden administration, it wouldn't be turning the clock back to the uh, the Obama uh, second term policy on, on China. It's worth reminding ourselves that the Obama administration thought it was going to pivot to Asia, thought it was going to sort of turn away from uh, the, the Middle Eastern mess and, and come up with a coherent strategy for China. It failed uh, to the point that the, the phrase pivot to Asia became su uh, the subject of, of jokes uh, in Beijing. And by the end of Obama's term, if you look at the national security strategy written by HR's predecessor, Susan Rice, it essentially was uh, re a recommendation to accept uh, the rise of China as a kind of unstoppable force. That's uh, something that the United States, which after all wasn't so exceptional anyway, should just get used to. So there's no way that a Biden can go back to that for one very simple reason. 
Donald Trump has changed the national view of China, and it's one of the few bipartisan issues uh, in America today. If you look at the latest Pew Research, uh, an even a bigger swing uh, towards an unfavorable view of China has happened amongst both Republicans and Democrats, amongst older Americans and younger Americans. And in that sense, I think the Democrats have understood that the only way that you can handle the China issue in 2020 is to try somehow to be more hawkish than Trump on China. Uh, so I, I think this is a really interesting issue because there is a chance, I wouldn't say it was my base case, but there is a chance that the whole thing could blow up before the election. Uh, notice, uh, as we speak, uh, the pressure is being increased on Huawei. Uh, the Commerce Department had already issued rules that were going to be very problematic for Huawei come September. They, they ramped it up some more in the past week. The reality is that Huawei pretty soon is going to be cut off from all sources of, of imported semiconductors, including the very high-end ones manufactured in Taiwan by TSMC. So there is some chance in my mind uh, that this is such pressure on China uh, that it is actually going to provoke some kind of a response from, uh, from Beijing. And we could suddenly find ourselves facing a China-Taiwan crisis before we get to election day. I think this would be a big headache uh, for the Democrats for one very obvious reason that I hardly need to explain to you gentlemen, that a foreign policy crisis has one guaranteed effect. It makes the president front and center of media coverage, and it causes uh, the challengers to vaporize and disappear. So I think China could yet become an issue. A lot depends on what the Chinese themselves decide to do. My impression is, and I'd be interested to hear HR's thoughts on this, is that they are pulling back from confrontation. Even the so-called wolf warrior diplomats are sounding distinctly soft soapy at the moment. And I think the calculation in Beijing is we do not want to show down now, no matter how painful this is, because we really quite uh, welcome the idea of a Biden presidency. But I, I just don't think you can rule out an escalation because the pressure being applied to, to China's economy is very great indeed. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll jump in quickly because I want to hear John's comments on this as well. But I, I think you're absolutely right, Neil. This was, the, I think, the most fundamental shift we put in place during the Trump administration, the administration has carried it forward. And, and, uh, and, and I do think that what China wants to do is they want to get back, right, to, the, to not just the Obama years, but then the George W. Bush years before that, really administrations that had bought into the assumption generally that China, having been welcomed into the international order economically, would liberalize its economy, play by the rules, and eventually liberalize its form of governance. Now, it is it is an inescapable conclusion that those assumptions were fundamentally flawed and, and demonstrably false. And I think that there are three, though, misperceptions still on the part of some of the Democratic Party that could lead to unwise policies vis-a-vis -vis China. The first of these is that, hey, this is really a U.S.-China problem. And, of course, they're playing in to the, to the Chinese Communist Party's narrative when they say that, right? Hey, how is it a U.S. problem? When, when, you know, when, when Chinese soldiers and the PLA, People's Liberation Army, are bludgeoning Indian soldiers to death on the Himalayan frontier. How is it a U.S. problem? Did we cause them to intern over a million Uyghurs and actually to conduct a campaign of cultural genocide in which Uyghur birth rates are down 60% due to forced abortions, forced sterilizations, uh, and forced implantation of, of IUDs and, and, into women? Is it a U.S. Is it a U.S.-China problem that, that the Chinese vessels are ramming and sinking Malaysian fish, fishing vessels or, or ramming you know, Vietnamese vessels in, in the South China Sea or threatening Taiwan or 
launching a, 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 a huge cyber attack on Australia or attacking our medical labs and research facility as and our hospitals during a pandemic i mean really and the wolf warrior diplomacy and so that's just a myth that it's it's, it's a problem that we've kind of created you know that you know because trump is so is, is so abrasive the second myth is hey there's no multinational cooperation here uh, there's tremendous multinational cooperation ongoing on china right now you can see the pendulum shifting in europe right and i think the administration's put kind of a full core press on this Secretary Pompeo gets back, I think, tomorrow after after a trip to, to Central Asia uh, and, and, and and South Asia concerning the, the problem set associated uh, with uh, with China. And and uh, and, and we, we've seen multinational indictments and sanctions and all sorts of, of military cooperation, diplomatic cooperation, new standards, right, for infrastructure investment to counter some of the worst lending practices of the Chinese I could go on. I'm not going to. The third, the third uh, myth is is is, um, is that what well, we just need to find more areas of cooperation with the Chinese Communist Party, and this is what I worry about: kind of a restarting of these dialogues that we've engaged with with China that actually led nowhere, and just created the illusion of potential progress, so the Chinese Communist Party could continue its economic and military and diplomatic aggression against us unchecked and uncontested. And so I, I think that there have been a range of actions taken. You mentioned, Neil, the, you know, the restriction of access to chips, which you pointed out actually you know, years ago. You, you mentioned this fleeting window of opportunity uh, to, to, to use the, the, this, this element of leverage in a decisive way. Uh, I'm happy to see it. I am afraid even though there, there is, you, you rightly pointed out, a bipartisan consensus on the problem of China, that the policies, again, this in reaction to Trump, right? Anything Trump did must be wrong. Therefore, you know, we, you know, we should put in these, these, these other policies. Um, I, I'm concerned that there'll be a, a backing off on some of these initiatives, which I think are immensely important to the competition with the Chinese Communist Party. And, you know, I, finally, I'll just say, those who, who argue for this return to cooperation, they pose a false dilemma. As, as you mentioned, the false dilemma is either to go back to the old policy of managing our own decline, right, and, and accommodating the Chinese Communist Party, or hey, it's gonna be war. Well, actually, I don't believe that in, in the Thucydides trap. I believe that actually, if we can, can, had continued to accommodate the Chinese Communist Party, they would get more and more aggressive as they were in the South China Sea and elsewhere. And that would put us on a path to confrontation. So, um, you know, I, 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 I think that this is a big issue. It should be a, a campaign issue, something to, to talk about. Uh, and and it, as John mentioned uh, in the beginning, you know, it should be an issue talked about with really a degree of specificity about what are the objectives, what are, what are the policies. And, and John, I know, we, you know we're back to China. So uh, over to you. Well, I want to get us back to domestic policy because I have, I have some- And I want to do economics with you, John, specifically. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and I don't want to, I think we're going to have many more uh, talks on the wisdom of Cold War II and, and how to handle uh, China. Uh, but I will grant you that both parties seem to be headed in the same direction as unwise as I think it is. Uh, and what happens is that after change of administration, lots of words get said, uh, each administration quietly accepts things that, uh, it may have yelled about, but are convenient. And it is true that the, the Democrats are as happy to China bash as the Republicans right now. 
Uh, Bernie Sanders' view on trade is quite similar to Donald Trump's. I, th I think Sanders even was uh, upfront about that at some point. So mercantilism, protectionism, bring back the jobs of the 1950s is as much uh, in, in his rhetoric as Trump's rhetoric. So I, I think they will uh, go along and continue Cold War II. Uh, and then and we can, after, uh, after this is over, go back to discussing the wisdom of it uh, rather than uh, where does it fit in current presidential politics. John, John, I've got a quick comment because, you know, I read The Grumpy Economist, as I always do, and, and, and you suggested a bit of a moral equivalency, I thought, with the Chinese Communist Party and its mercantilist policies. I'll tell you, I mean, the person who's been working on this, Bob Lighthizer, I think he's one of the most competent people I've ever met. And, and always his approach with trade enforcement mechanisms, at least when I knew him there, was that those trade enforcement mechanisms were to ultimately get back to a, a place where you didn't have to use them, and 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 uh, and really what what precipitated you know the the use of of you know, tariffs, the trade enforcement mechanisms to get China's attention were a whole range of unfair trade and economic practices associated with forced transfer of intellectual property, sensitive technologies, limited and 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 not uh, not reciprocal access to their market. You know, so I don't see the equivalency there. Uh, and, and and I think that there are structural problems with mm -hmm. a statist economic system that uses it with it perceived as its relative advantages against our free market economic systems. Okay, wait, wait. And, let, let me so, just. We're getting off the track of Biden and the Democrats. I want to have this discussion. Uh, I want to have it ne next the week after next. But I don't want to. I don't want to get away with the words moral equivalence between us and the Chinese. Uh, I never said anything about moral equivalence, I equivalence of idiocy. We may be shooting the boat as to make them stop shooting the boat if you'd like, the holes in the boat if you'd like. But no, there's no moral equivalence between the U.S. and China. And let's get back. Okay, to we'll dro I'll dro drop the moral. No, no, you were suggesting an equivalency, an equivalency. Let's have this discussion. We've got, we got about 10 minutes of show left and before missiles fly between Neil and John. Let's uh, <laughs> stick with economics and Gentlemen, what I want to talk about the time we have left is perhaps the, the emerging of economics and social justice. It's called economic justice. Now, I'm in California, so is John Cochran, so is HR. Uh, uh, Neil will be joining us back here one day. As I speak, the legislature is looking at raising taxes on millionaires. They want to up the bracket by a few points. They're concerning a wealth tax. If you, uh, own, if you have more than $30 million in your fortune, the state of California is going to come at you for up to 10 years, regardless of where you have it. Uh, but let's talk about Washington. And John, why don't you lead this off? If there's a difference between, between Democrats, young and old right now, and between Bernie and Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren, it is the idea of capitalism and the idea of capitalism being bad and wealth being bad. So I, I think this is, as usual, um, ideology to spoon feed to the op as opiate to the masses and doesn't really describe what they're going to do. And let, let me just, if I just step through what I think we are likely to see under the administration headed by Biden, but really run in all its details by AOC, uh, uh, Kamala Harris, um, Elizabeth Warren, and, and, and the new progressives. What are we likely to actually see? And can we put a better unifying story on that than the story of they were following the ideology to bring justice to the people? Mm -hmm. uh, what are they gonna do to schools? Uh, they're gonna kill, Joe Biden said so, they're gonna kill charter schools, uh, clamp down parochial and private schools. They're gonna really buck up the uh, teachers unions uh, at, to the destruction of, the, uh, of education of especially minorities and poor people. Why? 
Teachers unions support Democrats, uh, obvious. What are they gonna do about energy? Uh, welcome the rest of the country to California, where we uh, got rid of our fossil fuels in advance of, and don't have the renewals yet, and they are turning the lights out. Uh, once again, uh, surprise, surprise, it gets hot occasionally. You're going to see the same thing. Uh, pipelines will be stopped. Fossil fuel development will be stopped. Someday, maybe the renewables will come. There will be an enormous amount of green pork, uh, which will line pockets of friendly Democratic donors will do nothing to reduce carbon or the global temperature. Mm -hmm. um, what, what are they going to do about, uh, well, we know what's happening to unions. By the way, welcome to California, where I think it's tomorrow, Uber and Lyft go out of business because uh, labor is, they're all going to be regular. No, a judge just imposed to stay on that. So they're ah, temporary. Well, within, we came within a day of destroying Uber and Lyft. Uh, obviously, the same kind of thing is coming to employment near you. What does that do? It means everybody has to be in a big company, uh, a big union, and, and we, all, uh, we all do what the politicians uh, would like us to do. A regulation of the internet, they're not dumb. Uh, the internet is where we talk. And they will, they, they, it's not just about money, it's about making sure that speech gets done the way it is. There'll be a big regulatory onslaught, uh, both by formal means, dear colleague letters, informal means, uh, imposed. What does this really mean? This, this means guangxi. <laughs> this means you need to have the connections in order to, uh, to keep the regulators uh, off your back. Um, so it, uh, pretty much in every, you know, how do you put that together? What's that really, oh, taxes. Taxes, it's not just a couple bracket points. The proposal actually in the state legislature is 16% uh, state tax rate on top of the, it's gonna be at least 40% federal tax rate, non-deductible, uh, wealth tax wealth tax as well. Um, now, what does that mean? That means good year to be a tax lawyer. Uh, I, I think the good businesses for 2021 are gonna be tax lawyer and diversity consultant uh, because that's where the money is, is going to go. Um, this doesn't empower poor people. This empowers political organizations that keep us in power. And that's it about, it. it's not left as socialism is where the government takes over the means of production. Uh, so, so, so Neil, where does- Let, let me just finish, I have one last thought. The, 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 what is the system of government that I just described? It's cronyism. It's cronyism with leftist rhetoric organized uh, along racial lines. That, that is, I think, what you see uh, in the policies going. And, and I, I would add, uh, watch the investigations coming. So running the Justice Department is extremely important as well. Uh, that's, that, that's the policy mix. And, and I think it's a mistake to take the ideology too serious. Let's take the reality and then try to put a word on it. And that's the best sort of lefty Latin American cronyism is the best I can put on to what I think we'll see. Hey, Neil, can the Democratic Party find a happy medium when it comes to the virtue and conduct of capitalism? Well, in some ways, what John's been saying uh, should give us a glimmer of hope uh, on which to conclude our conversation. Because as I said at the beginning, th this is kind of the old progressivism. I mean, just, just think about it. They're going to put taxes up uh, at the federal level on individual income taxes, on corporate taxes, the rates are going back up to where they were before. Uh, I think the 12.4% social security payroll tax 
uh, on earnings above 400,000 is uh, are likely to come as well. Uh, and capital gains taxation is going to be uh, changed. Uh, but it's all kind of a drop in the bucket compared with the spending plans. If they renew all the COVID-19 programs, which I think they plan to do, you're talking two to three trillion. And then, oh, it could be up to two trillion on infrastructure and industrial policy, that kind of cronyism John was talking about. And the reason that I find all of this paradoxically cheering is we know what will happen. Uh, th this will not be good for uh, economic growth. Uh, it will, uh, in effect, Californianize the rest of the country. Uh, and uh, as a consequence, I'll make my prediction here and now, the midterms uh, in 2022, if there is a Biden presidency, will be a shocker. There'll be another shellacking. It'll be richly deserved. And hopefully in the intervening two years, the Republican Party will have slapped itself in the face, taken a long, hard look in the mirror, and got back to some fundamental conservative principles, because that's what we're going to need uh, in the face of this kind of uh, clapped-out progressivism. By the way, the implications uh, of this co policy combination uh, for the US dollar, potentially for inflation, uh, are all pretty grim. And I, you know, I think back and ask myself, you know, what democratic administration is this actually going to be like? Is it going to be Lyndon Johnson, who really hit the ground running uh, in his first term with some extraordinarily bold uh, social legislation and civil rights in the great society? Uh, is it going to be Clinton? Or is it going to be Obama? Or is it going to be Jimmy Carter? Because when you think back, uh, th there's, there's one presidency that the Democrats really can't feel uh, any great nostalgia for, and it's the Carter presidency. And I think there's a lot of Carter coming uh, in the form of Joe Biden, uh, not just generationally, but also in terms of the likely content of, of policies. So I'm going to just have this little glimmer of hope that what we've seen this week uh, in, in the Democratic Convention uh, is really a kind of extended advertisement for clapped-out progressivism, which will have a kind of two-year run uh, at screwing up the nation's economy, after which, hopefully, some sanity will prevail. HR, you are the five-star general of optimism when it comes to this broadcast. Why don't you close out on a on a positive note, something good you just saw this week, and maybe maybe Neil suggested that perhaps Joe Biden is not going to take us over the cliff and will be a little more moderate than we think. What do you think? Well, I, I think what we need is we need the vast majority of Americans to kind of to reject this kind of ideology associated with kind of you know critical theory, right? This is this this ideology that there are inherent power structures in society that must be torn down. Well, you know, we live in a democracy where people actually are empowered to have a say in how they're governed and can demand more from from their you know from their politicians and can demand real solutions instead of empty rhetoric and and, and non-solutions. So okay, if, if you want an optimistic note, I would just say what is critical is an educated electorate. Let's educate ourselves. Let's learn about these issues and let's demand more from our politicians of both parties and recognize that's how we can exercise our power as citizens in our country. And in this election year, as bad as it's going to get, as vitriolic as, as the rhetoric is going to be, let's be grateful that we live in a democracy. Let's be grateful that we can have these debates and we can have these discussions. Let's reject any kind of an orthodoxy that tells us we have to think in a certain way. And, and so I, I think we have a lot to celebrate as Americans. We have problems. Yes, we do. But we have a way to self-correct uh, because we have a say in how we're governed.
and we can exercise our votes and 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 participate in the democratic process uh, in this this crazy next few months. Okay, we're going to leave it there, John Cochran. I know you have something you want to say, but let's pick up next week on the Republicans. I'll let you lead off, my friend. <laughs> and a reminder, we will be back next week. We normally film this on Tuesdays, run on Wednesdays, but I think we're going to film on Thursday next week so we can watch three days of Republican convention. And rest assured, we will have some impolite things to say about them as well. So this is not a one-sided episode you're seeing today. So I'd like to thank my colleagues for today's episode. Uh, that's it for this week of Goodfellows. On the behalf of the Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, and H.R. McMaster, all of us here at the Hoover Institution. Uh, stay safe and stay healthy. By all means, be careful out there. We'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week.